Good morning, St. Michael's. Please stand. Lord, we come before you this morning with thanksgiving and with praise. Thank you for the life that you've given us. And we thank you for all the good things that you bring to us. And we lift up our hands in praise to you.
desires known and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I am truly sorry, and I humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you absolution, remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace, consolation of his Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy.
Your word.
Trust in you with all our hearts. 
For as you always resist the proud, who can find in their own strength, so you never forsake those who make their boast in your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Just stretch your arm out. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless each and every one of these children as they go off to Sunday school, Lord, that you would open their heart and their mind to your wisdom and your truth, that you would strengthen them and speak to them, Lord God, and fill them with your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go fight win. Good morning. Our first reading comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. The word of the Lord. This morning's psalm is Psalm 139. Please read responsively by the whole verse. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. This morning's second reading comes from the book of Philemon, chapter 1, commencing at verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, 
a prayer. Lord, I pray that as you speak to us this morning, that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this week, we get to the fun part of the Exodus, let's say, right? This is the showdown. I've labeled this week Yahweh versus tyranny. That's the showdown from the beginning of time until now, actually. As we covered a little bit when we mentioned the fall and how that created the context for the exodus of our own lives, what happened is God created this paradise, this walled garden for us to live in community with him. But in order to be in true freedom, in order to live in perfect love, you actually have to be committed and joined with God. You actually have to conform your will to his. Not because he is a megalomaniac who wants to control your every decision, but because he created the world to be an outpouring of his love and anything that is not. Oh. Anything that is not uh, outpouring, sorry, anything that does not go with the direction of God's will is actually anti-love and anti-freedom. So even Eve eating this apple of the tree that's supposed to make her like God, that story that we tell of the forbidden fruit, that was actually an act that enslaved her. To the law of sin and death. And Adam came right along. So when we talk about this title of the sermon, Exodus, the the battle between Yahweh and tyranny, that's actually the battle in your life today. The battle that's going on is between God and the tyranny that would enslave you in this very day and age. And luckily for us, in fact, luck is not the right term. Uh, There's something grander about it. By God's providence for us, the battle has been won. We're just walking into the victory. So when we go over this uh, battle in Exodus, I want you to remember that this same God who by his power showed that no might could stand against him, nobody could stop him from saving his people, that God is fighting your tyranny. And he is bringing you into the promised land. And he will not stop until that work is completed in you. Amen? So week one of going through Exodus, we found this small family of Abraham had grown into a people enslaved in Egypt. And that they were crying out for salvation. Now, there's no evidence that they were crying out to God. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that they had forgotten the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Egypt. They had begun to participate with the Egyptians in the worshiping of the false gods. And they were probably just crying out in desperation to anybody. Pharaoh, the Nile, Ra, any of these gods, somebody save us. But our God is so good that those who seek will find, even if they don't know where to look. And so he heard them, and he prepared for them a savior. 
in the person of Moses, the same way God prepared a Savior for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so week two, we covered Moses' journey. And Moses is one of those great characters in the Old Testament that absolutely has to be true. Because he is not written like a superhero. He is not perfect. He is stubborn and weak. And he's a murderer to begin with. Out of his anger, out of his uh, anger at seeing a Hebrew person beaten up, he kills the Egyptian, hides the body, and then runs away because the Pharaoh's going to kill him for it. That's the Moses that we get to look up to, considered the greatest character in the whole Old Testament. And he's a murderer and a coward. That's who we're starting with. Thank God, because if God just found all of these perfect people and used them, we might think that we have to be perfect in order to be used by God. But that's not his point. In fact, even by choosing the people of Israel, he chose what has been called throughout the entire Old Testament a stubborn and rebellious people. Because he wants us to know that he can save even you. Right? He can use even you. And so we get Moses, he gets, he's in the desert, he gets stripped of all of the conceits, all of the arrogance that he grew up as a prince of Egypt. He had all this stuff that God strips him away, and he's finally able to hear the word of God in the burning bush. And throughout this encounter, Moses is objecting strenuously, God, you got the wrong guy. Eventually he says, please don't send me. He has no more objections, but please choose someone else. But God gives him three signs. To show him and to show the Israelites that God has chosen even this murderer, Moses, to be his representation. That he has chosen Moses to be their savior. He gives them the sign of the the staff, which becomes a snake. And then he tells them to pick up the snake. Because the power of God is such that when he conquers sin, represented by the snake in your life, that becomes the foundation of the authority of God in your life is his overthrow of the enemy. In fact, the greatest act of God on the cross was in destroying the serpent of old, that that symbol of sin and death as God died and then rose again and conquered. And so our symbol of authority on the cross is the same symbol as Moses' staff, that is the conquered snake. There is no authority over God's authority. Then that's what the staff symbolizes. Then he has his hand that God says, put in your cloak, and it comes out, and it's leprous. It's a sign of the death that is in our bodies because of the law of sin and death reigning in our bodies. And he says, and he heals it, right? God heals it. So God says, I can conquer even the consequences of sin in your life. Not only set you free from sin, but conquer the consequences and give you life. And lastly, he talks about the water of the Nile turning into blood, representing God's sacrificial system that ends and culminates in the blood of Jesus that conquers all. So these are the preparatory symbols that God gives Moses to go back to Egypt. And just kind of keep those in your mind as we look at what God does in Egypt. He saves his people out of slavery, and he brings them into new life through these symbols. Things that might have been concerned, you know, there's actually people who read the Bible as though everything written in it is a metaphor. And they're like, duh, the staff is a metaphor, so it didn't really happen. He had a stick, and God gave him a vision. And he dreamed that that's there. Maybe he had some ayahuasca 
some uh, some hallucinogenic drug that was burning in the bush, and that's what that represents. They have all these explanations, except for the real one, which is that God is a God of symbol and metaphor. But the symbols and the metaphor lead us into the reality of who God is. Absolutely, the staff is a symbol. Absolutely, the, the leprous hand is a symbol. But it doesn't take away the reality of what it is, right? Of course, the cross is the most powerful symbol in the history of the world. But there really was a man who died who was God. There really was these things. And there's this great quote that I think encompasses Moses' journey from the man, the prince of Egypt, the murderer, the fugitive, the nomad. And now he gets introduced and there's this quote from this book I just finished reading the other day by Neil Gaiman. It says, he had gone beyond the world of metaphor and simile into the places of the place of things that are. And it was changing him. That's the invitation today as we talk about what is the most symbolic of stories in the Old Testament. Every plague is a symbol of something meant to teach us. I'm inviting you beyond the word of the metaphor and the simile simile into the things that are. And that was the journey that Moses took. And then God gives him his name. That's the other thing God gives him. The name of God, Yahweh. Now, this one's interesting, and we'll get into the plagues next, but this is quite literally the point of the first chapters of Exodus. Until they get to the wilderness, that whole thematic section is introducing you to the name of God. And you'll see that repeated throughout. Listen for the Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh said this, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. Now, there's people who don't believe in God. Believe it or not, they're out there. In fact, Sometimes maybe we have difficulty believing in God, would you think? At least we have difficulty in believing he is who he says he is, right? And when you listen to people who don't believe in God, there's a simple question you can ask them. What do you mean by God? And 90% of the time, I don't believe in that God either, right? Because they'll talk about this judgmental Zeus-like figure who sits on his throne and, you know, zaps that person and zaps that person and is vindictive. That's not the God that we believe in. So what's the point of Exodus? The point of Exodus is even we have difficulty knowing who God is. So let me show you who God is in the story of him rescuing his people. The name Yahweh means the God who delivers, the God who rescues, the God who is faithful, even when we are not faithful. Like I said, there's no evidence that the Israelites are serving him under the slavery of Egypt. In fact, all the evidence points to the fact that they've given up on that God, that they have to be reintroduced to him by his powerful saving arm. So we get Moses heading into Egypt with that knowledge to approach Pharaoh to bring about this confrontation. And then we have this little detour because the Old Testament is like that. And God is like that. Here's the detour. He's heading in to Egypt. You might not even know the story. In fact, they didn't show this story in the cartoon version of the Prince of Egypt. And I get why. It says God tried to kill Moses. Wait, what? He sends him to Egypt and then he tries to kill him. That's what it says. It says God tried to kill Moses. And then what happens? His wife... Zipporah circumcises his son. 
And she says, I am now a wife of blood with you, Moses. And then he's good. He's good to go. What a weird story. What the heck is going on? Well, this is what's going on. God knew that if he went to Egypt and his whole household wasn't committed to serving the Lord, then he wasn't going to make it. In fact, there's this great rule that my buddy Jordan Peterson has, and it says, I'm going to paraphrase. It says, get your own house in perfect order before you attempt to criticize the world. You see a lot of people out there telling you how your world should be, how the world out there should be. They should do this. They should do that. And they're divorced. And they haven't talked to their kid in two years. And they're drug addicted. That's an extreme example. But you know what? Every one of us do the same thing. We're very concerned with the log in everybody else's eye. But we don't look at the speck in our own eye. There's a fundamental biblical principle where you have to get your own house in order. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so God tried to kill Moses because he knew he wasn't ready yet. It was a test for him, for his wife, for his son. But they passed with flying colors. She was willing to circumcise her son and say, I am now a wife of blood to you. Your mission is my mission. That's a pretty darn good wife, right? She understood. She wanted to be a part of the mission of God to save not only the Israelites, but ultimately, we know the end of the story, this act saved the world. The fact that she was willing to dedicate her son and her household. Because you know where the division happens between husbands and wives often? Over their children. Because I know best what's for my kids, and she knows best what's for my kids, and maybe it doesn't agree. And so we see in here a biblical example of a husband and wife dedicating their house to God instead of to their own idea about what should be. The wife was even willing to dedicate her son to the Lord to get about the mission of God. All right. A little detour. Okay. So we get Moses heading to Egypt, and the Lord, we're going to jump into Exodus 4.19. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. This is a connection, the reason I bring this up, between Moses and Jesus. Where have we heard that before? For the people who were seeking your life are now dead. We actually hear that in Matthew chapter 2, and it's prophesied in Hosea. And what happens is, when Jesus is born, we have another tyrant king who thinks that he can rule the world. And he decides to go out and try and kill Jesus. And where does Jesus run to? Egypt. Because it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And then what does God say to him? Go out of Egypt. It's this reverse parallelism, right? For those who have sought to kill Jesus are dead. It's the same language. What am I saying here? God does the same thing yesterday, today, and forever. With Moses, he was looking to rescue his people. And that connection between Moses and Jesus is extremely important as we go through this because that's who Jesus said he was like. All right, let's get to the confrontation here. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
This is possibly the most controversial aspect of the plagues because it's repeated throughout that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and he doesn't let the people go. So very briefly, what is happening here with Pharaoh? Because if it's like, there's a way of reading this where you think of God and he's manipulating Pharaoh so that he can have this big bad guy who has no free will so that he can beat him up. So that the people can see, oh, God's stronger than Pharaoh. What's actually happening here? There's a mystery to it, but I think it's probably something like this. Imagine, everybody says Hitler, so we're going to jump over to Stalin, right, next door. So imagine Stalin is on his deathbed. In fact, we have some tales of what was happening on his deathbed. And imagine somebody came to him and said, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you just repent and believe, you will be saved. If you stop murdering people, which is what Stalin did for decades in Soviet Union, then you can be saved. You can turn your life over to Christ. What do you think Stalin would have said at that moment? Well, I guarantee you he would not have agreed to that ter- those terms because he had decided in his heart that he knew what was best for his life. And not only that, but he had the power and the right to kill people to get his vision achieved. That's exactly what has happened with Pharaoh. First with his father, who threw the babies into the Nile, and then as the next Pharaoh comes up, he continues this program of enslaving and murdering the Hebrew people. And do you know what murderers and tyrants don't do? They don't give up their power. I am arguing here that not only was God involved, but that there's an other aspect to this where Pharaoh made his bed and now he's lying in it. That's a warning to all of us. Guess what? If you're in a habit of always getting a milkshake every time you go through a drive-thru, it's going to be really hard for you to not harden your heart and stubbornly get the milkshake even when you know you shouldn't get the milkshake. That's a very small example of what's going on here. But when what you decide to do determines what you will decide to do. At some point, we have to stop trying to get our own way in life. Otherwise, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. If you insist on your own way... And don't, your heart is going to become hard to what God wants to do in your life. That's what happens to Pharaoh. And then there's a warning in here. We're going to skip down a little bit because we can get to that later. But basically God says, because you won't let the Israelites go, my firstborn son Israel, your firstborn son will be required of you. I'm going to take your firstborn son. That is the challenge that has been issued to Pharaoh. Now, the interesting part about this is he says, if you don't let my son go, Israel, that he may serve me. We're all framing the, the, what the plagues are about. What's the point? Israel should be worshiping and serving Yahweh, the true God. But instead, they're worshiping and serving other gods. And Pharaoh is enforcing this. And God's saying, that's not the way the world works, and you better let him go. You better let Israel go. And so the challenge is not between whether Israel will lay bricks in Egypt. The challenge is, who is Israel going to serve? 
So he goes to Pharaoh and he lays this all out. He does the miracles. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And then in verse Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh gives his reply. And this is his reply throughout. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. What did I say this whole section is about? Who is Yahweh? That's the challenge. And Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. And God basically says, you're going to find out. So then Pharaoh gets pretty upset at this upstart murdering thug who left Egypt's house and demands that Israel gets let go. And he does, we get that famous phrase, more bricks, less straw, right? He tells them, you got to make more bricks, you slaves, and I'm not even going to give you the materials with which to make them. The straw, good luck. And my favorite part about this story is Moses' response. Moses immediately panics. God has told him over and over again that Pharaoh's not going to let my people go. And Moses immediately panics. This is what he says. Moses turns to the Lord, or Yahweh, and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You can just hear like the, the angst. It's like you haven't even delivered them this much. And you said you were going to deliver them all the way. What the heck, God? And God basically says, look, I told you this was going to happen. Now let's get about our business. He has no patience, right? Thank God. He has no patience for Moses' misunderstanding of what's going on. He's like, this is the truth. He reminds him of what he said. And then he says, let's get about our business. So we see here, this is the beginning of the plagues. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart in verse 3 of, uh, I guess, chapter 6. No, chapter, yeah, chapter 6. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That is God's response to Moses' panic. And now the plagues. Now, there's a couple of things we need to think about. We're not going to go through each plague and kind of explore. There's so many nuances, but I just want us to get a picture of what's going on here and what we're meant to take from this. Because as far as we know, God hasn't told us that he's going to start assaulting the IRS to make sure that they don't tax us as much as we think they should, right? We're in a different situation. Our tyrannies, God is not coming down and smiting them with frogs and locusts. So what is the point here then? If God's operating differently now, then what is the point for us? Well, first of all, we need to keep in mind, this whole thing is about knowing who Yahweh is. It's actually said seven times throughout the plague, so that Pharaoh will know that I am Yahweh, so that you will know that I am Yahweh, and so that Egypt will know that I am Yahweh, so everyone knows. That's the point. We're trying to figure out who God is and what power does he have. They're broken up into three groups. There's ten plagues. There's three groups of three, so there's nine, and then there's the Passover, which we're not going to talk about today because it's a whole nother thing, a whole nother. It's a real good grammar. So the first, the fourth, and the seventh plague are about God sending Moses to, in the morning to meet Pharaoh at the Nile. Then the second, fifth, and eighth plague begin with God meeting Pharaoh in his house. 
And then the third, the sixth, and the ninth come suddenly without any warning to Pharaoh. I say all this to say all of these things that seem opaque to us at times, seem willful, this is God's plan. And he's just unfolding it step by step to make a point to us about how he is saving his people. The two points that are most present in what he's doing is it's an uncreation drama. There is the creation in the beginning of Genesis. The plagues parallel them in reverse. I'm not going to get into all the symbolism, but I'll just mention this. For instance, in the creation story, in the seven-day creation story, God speaks ten times to create the world, to separate the waters, all these different things. He says, and then God said, in the plagues, it says, and then God said ten times. They're a parallel. The language that's used throughout, from the dust of the earth, where do the, the gnats or one of the plagues, it says, from the dust of the earth. It's the same language that God used to create life. So there's all these different parallels. And what's happening is when you give yourself over to sin, tyranny, right? This is a parable as well about us and our fight against sin. You actually are uncreated in your consequence. Your image of God becomes marred and marred and marred. And ultimately, we know that if you don't accept the saving power of Jesus in your life, then there's an infinity of uncreation, of death. And so what God's showing is not how, how strong I am to defeat these people so that you can worship my strength. He's not just showing that. He's actually showing when you pursue other gods, this is the result. So that's the uncreation. Everything that is not love in the, in, the, in the example of Jesus Christ is actually counter to the very existence of the world, uncreation. And then there's the confrontation with the false gods of Egypt. Each of them is called out by the plagues. In fact, they're all linked to the various plagues. And so anybody you serve that is not Yahweh, you're doing it wrong. Yahweh is the only good God, the God, the author and giver of all good things. So let's go through this. How are we supposed to think about this judgment of God? Well, I gave you a hint there. There's this story that's told as, a, as kind of a parable about Hurricane Katrina, which you guys probably remember, right? Complete devastation in New Orleans because of this massive hurricane. Come to find out that Many of the preventative measures that would have mitigated that utter catastrophe were not taken because of corruption. So was it God sending a flood on the evil people of New Orleans? Or was it humans sinning, which leads to destruction? Kind of both, right? I don't want to get into the mystery or the theology, but the point is that God, like a good father, disciplines those he loves. And like a good judge, he judges those who need judging. And that's what's happening here in the plagues. If you have a tyranny that has given itself over to the type of evil where babies are wantonly murdered, you can expect the judgment of God. If you have a tyranny that demands that you worship its gods in place of your own, you can expect the judgment of God. So plague one, the Nile turns to blood. 
Well, we know what that is. When Pharaoh threw the babies into the river, the ones that would have been Moses' contemporary, the boys, their innocent blood is crying out from the waters in judgment against Egypt. The wealth of Egypt is the Nile, and God instantly takes that away. It says they have to dig wells to find water to drink because all the water is blood. It's also a condemnation of the Egyptian god Hopi or the god of the Nile. And what it should say to us today is, hey, do you trust in your wealth instead of God? Well, God can instantly dry up that flow. Or your mistakes can land you in hot water and you can get fired. The only one who will not abandon you, who will always provide, is God. Plague twos the frogs, which might be the weirdest one. They just are assaulted by like tons, thousands and thousands of frogs. I cannot imagine. But there's thousands and thousands of frogs coming up from everywhere. What does that mean? Well, I'm just kind of hitting the surface here, but frogs are amphibians. What did God do in creation? He separated the water and the land. What are frogs? Frogs are both water and land. The order, the natural order that God had created is breaking down. Not only that, but there's an Egyptian god that's symbolized by a frog, the god of fertility. is symbolized by a frog, which makes no sense in my mind symbolically. But I guess the god symbolized by a frog. So what is God saying? God's saying, I am, they are not. Yahweh, not them, right? I am that I am. Then there's the gnats from the dust of the earth. He says, strike the dust of the earth. The same dust that produced the life that is humanity, strike it and gnats will fly up out of the thousands. And what do gnats represent? Well, the dust has always represented mortality. From dust you've come to dust you shall return. So what's happening when you choose death? Well, death itself rises up to get you. The dust that represents death is rising up to take on the Egyptians. And at this point, God says, by the way, no more of the plagues are going to affect the Israelites. Gosh, there's so much to talk about. We're going to cut it short. Basically, what happens in the first three plagues, God's reminding the Israelites, I am God. They get the message, and the rest of the plagues are just for Egypt. Great. They are separate now. They're they're starting to take themselves away from Egypt. The next one is fill the lands with flies. And it's the same words that are used when it says fill the earth and multiply. That great promise of Genesis for humanity. Fill the earth and multiply. Instead, it's filled with flies, which symbolize decay, death, strife, enmity. Plague five, There's uh, the livestock is assaulted by an actual plague, a, a disease. Well, who is your provider? Is it your wealth and cows or is it God? And like I said, each one of these has a linked Egyptian god. So like, for instance, this one is the Egyptian goddess of the sky is portrayed as a cow. Uh, They have really interesting symbols because I'm just imagining like sky and cow doesn't usually go together. But the point of all of this is that God is the only one who can provide. The Egyptians are exposed as mere idols. Boils. This one's interesting, right? Boils in Hebrew, is the same word for snake in Hebrew spelled backwards, which is a common literary trope in Hebrew that you actually see. Like a house, the place of safety, is actually the word ark inverted, spelled backwards. 
They have these links between these things. And so it's like boils are the, the, the sin that you've engaged in has come back to bite you, right? It's turned around. It's gotten you. Then there's plague seven, the hail. Hail like never before seen on earth. Now, this is really fascinating because he actually gives a warning to the Egyptians. And he says, if you don't want to die, get under a roof. Go into the ark. God in his mercy is inviting even the heathens to participate in his protection, right? He's like, get out of there. And it says, those who heard the voice of the Lord were spared, and those who did not died. Once again, you can see the symbolism to where we're at today. We've got plague eight, the locust, symbolizing the never-ending hunger and gluttony that we often worship. We want our needs and our pleasures fulfilled in all things. And that will turn back on you and the locust will eat everything when you allow that passion to run free. And it comes from the east. The east is the symbol of evil in this time and in this place, right? It talks about east going east of Eden. The farther east you go, the farther you get into the evil territory. And then the wind from the west blows them away. And all throughout this time, you're like, what is Pharaoh doing? Well, what Pharaoh is doing is the most despicable thing you could imagine. He's saying, God, stop. I'll let the people go. God stops, and he says, nah, never mind. And then we might think, like, that's inconceivable. That word doesn't mean what you think it means in this case, right? Because he actually did it, right? It's inconceivable. As it may seem, as a dog returns to its own vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Pharaoh made his bed when he decided to kill the male babies of the Hebrews. When he decided to enslave that people, he made his bed and now he's lying in it. So this whole time he's going back and back and forth. And then the darkness comes. And if you didn't understand the connection between creation and uncreation, this is as clear as it gets. God literally says, let there be darkness. The exact same phrasing as let there be light. And what is he saying here? There is absolutely nothing good without God. Period. There is no light. There is no life. There is nothing without God. And of course, that is the most direct challenge to Egypt, whose chief God is the God of the sun, Ra, the one most associated with Pharaoh. Well, even the son of Ra cannot pierce what God has covered. Only Yahweh is the creator and giver of all good things. And at this point, Pharaoh starts negotiating. (laughs) And Pharaoh says, I'll let you go, but leave your women, your children, your old people behind. Just the men can go. And Moses says, nope, that's not what God said. Then he says, okay, fine, but leave your livestock behind. And Moses says, no, that's not what God said. I love this because you see Moses' transformation. He went from cowering, please don't send me, to being able to tell Pharaoh no because Guess what? He just saw God move in a wonderful way. Keep that in mind, too. When you see God move, you get transformed. And what is that symbolizing to us? God is not for partial freedom in our life. As we end today, let's remember that more than anything. They could have gone, just the men, Just the men and women, but they don't get their livestock. No, God is for their complete freedom. There is nothing that is the Hebrews that God will leave enslaved. In fact, they loot Egypt on their way out, right? 
They actually gain from their experience in slavery things that will bring their prosperity in the new lands because of God's goodness, God's redeeming power. Amen? So this is my question today. You don't think God is speaking to us today through the tragedies and plagues assaulting our world, our nation? God is able to redeem any situation. But the one continuing factor throughout the entire story of God is there have to be people who listen, who hear him and go about his business. Amen? That's our call in the midst of today because he wants to set us free for total freedom and redemption. Amen? Let's continue with the prayers of the people. Let us pray for the church and for the world. Father, we pray for your holy Catholic church. That we all may be one. Grant that every member of the church may truly and humbly serve you. That your name may be glorified by all people. We pray for all bishops, priests, and deacons. That they may be faithful ministers of your word and sacraments. We pray for all who govern and hold authority in the nations of the world. That there may be justice and peace on the earth. Give us grace to do your will in all that we undertake. That our works may find favor in your sight. Have compassion on those who suffer from any grief or trouble. That they may be delivered from their distress. Give to the departed eternal rest. Let light perpetual shine upon them. We praise you for your saints who have entered into joy. May we also come to share in your heavenly kingdom. Peace of the Lord be always with you. With your spirit. To peace. Well, what's the news? It's hot. It's really hot. And they, I saw one report through Wednesday, next Wednesday. Can you imagine that? Well, we will all survive. Are you sure? <laughs> you know how I got to sleep last night? I did the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon you. Did that about 10,000 times and don't sleep. It's hot. But, uh, yeah, we'll all survive. We live in paradise, and then occasionally, once every blue moon, we have to suffer a little. But that's a, that, that a great word. It's a great series that uh, Jesse's uh, bringing us. What do you got? Uh Women's meeting, our next women's meeting. I always feel weird saying women's meeting. I know. I don't know who allowed that. I just <laughs> ladies meeting. They snuck it in on me. You know? Ladies meeting. They have new names for women now, but, but we, I'm not going to use those. We do. We, we do have requirements. They have to have food. Yes. Have food. Nine thirty a.m. 
on Saturday the 10th. That's this Saturday. Yeah. 9.30 a.m. Um, and that will be here, correct? That will be here. All right. And Mia and Debbie will be uh, the contact people. If you have any questions, please see them, and hopefully they'll answer your questions. We did have a men's meeting scheduled, but uh, we're going to put that off for uh, a while. Um, we got to get ready for St. Michael's Feast, and that's what we're going to spend our time doing. So, no men's meeting next week. Also, because it's really hot, right? And then... We do have our feast, St. Michael's Feast. Save the date, Sunday, October 2nd, and it will be here at the church. It will be here Amen. at the church. Are there any details they need to know right now, Father Lewis? Okay, be here with a smile on your face. And is it uh, right after church, or is it right after church. Yeah, we're going to do it right after church. Right and, after uh, church. It's going to be spectacular. I can tell you that much. We, uh, we've really expanded our ability getting the downstairs not only back in our possession from preschools and such, but looking really amazing. So uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Indoors, outdoors, and... Uh, We'll, we'll tell you all about it. One last thing. Uh, we do have our society tomorrow, our pantry, our food pantry. And, um, yeah, it's going to be hot. I don't know how many people will, will show up for volunteers, um, but we do still have a lot of people that will show up for food. So if you can be here, okay. we would really appreciate your help. We would love to have you here. Three o'clock. You don't need to come any earlier than three, guys. Three is going to be plenty. But I uh, would love to have you guys here and sweat with the rest of us. Okay? We're going to set up tents, though, and we're going to have a couple of misters out there. Hopefully that will uh, give you a little relief. And that's tomorrow. 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 Three o'clock. Tomorrow. Be All right. Or be square. As we prepare to receive the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, let us respond to God's word by engaging with him in musical worship. And presenting to God our tithes and offerings out of that which God has given to us. Together, through Christ, let us continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. But do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God.
Thanks to the Lord our God. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through his cross and resurrection, he freed us from sin and death and called us to the glory that's made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart. Everywhere we proclaim your mighty works, for you call us out of darkness into your own wonderful light. And so with all the choir of angels in heaven, we proclaim your glory and join in their unending hymn of praise. your Holy Spirit come upon these gifts to make them holy, so they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he's given up to death a death he freely accepted, 
He took bread and gave you thanks. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and praise. He gave it to the disciples and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant. To shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. In memory of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Father, this life-giving bread and this saving cup. We thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and to serve you. May all of us who share in the body and blood of Jesus be brought together in unity by the Holy Spirit. Lord, remember the church throughout the world and make us grow in love. Together with our patriarch, Craig, and all of our bishops and clergy, Remember especially those who are sick or infirmed in spirit, soul, or body. Draw our hearts to remember the poor and the broken. And as we receive the body and blood of Jesus, may we be transformed, become the body of Christ to the world. Have mercy on us all. Make us worthy to share eternal life with the apostles and the martyrs and all the saints who have gone before us. May we praise you in union with them and give you glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. By him and with him and in him in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God and Father, now and forever. Amen. Jesus taught us to call God our Father, and we have courage to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. O Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us thy peace. The gifts of God for the people of God, take them to remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on them in your heart with thanksgiving. Blessed are called to the supper of the Lamb. Body Christ.
I'll tell you what. I can't speak for every Christian on earth, but I can speak for those of you here today. You passed a test. <laughs> and the Lord loves it. it just, Jesse was just repeatedly hitting on it. It says in Deuteronomy, I call heaven and earth to witness today against it, against you, that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and obey his voice and cling to him. That your It says, for he... He is your life. See, and, and, and that's, Jesse was kind of going, your life is in Christ. Well, He is your life. It's all wrapped together. It's difficult sometimes to, dis, to decipher it and for you. But it says that you may cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days. Every tick of the clock is in God's hands, not your hands. God's hands, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. And we do. We live in paradise a couple of bad days a year, and we whine a little bit, but we live in paradise. And all that is the Lord's doing, and he does it to those people who faithfully follow him in the simplest of ways. Man, if that isn't, if that isn't a reason enough to just... And every day in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord for your life in Christ. Amen? Amen. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you graciously accepted us as living members of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have fed us with spiritual food in the sacrament of his body and blood. Send us now into the world in peace and get the strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and signalness of heart, in Christ our Lord. Amen. St. <clears throat> Michael the Archangel, defend us in the battle and be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of our souls. Remember the gospel, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling. I feel like I need to go through that every day, and I do. I begin my day in reconciliation with the Lord. He doesn't think anywhere near about it as much as you do, though. He loves you. He's forgiven you. He's not mad at you. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.
power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God.